Let, let me begin by, by talking about some realities that I think is really important for us to kind of uh, set as sort of foundation before we move forward. Much of what, I, what I'm sharing with, with you folks today is, is, is going to, to, to really push us when it comes to, to paradigm and church planting. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm not a missionary. Uh, I have I, I've been a pastor for uh, over 20 or about 20 years. And so part of my Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 calling is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, my uh, my personal uh, approach to ministry has a heavy amount of calling out and equipping the members of my church to be involved in church planting. So please hear me say this. I, I am a pastor. Now, that's, that's really critical because some of the things that I'm going to be talking about, you're going to think, well, well, J.D., you're, you sound like you're being anti-pastor. That's not what I'm saying at all. The other thing is, is that um, I, I know the experience of Sunday after Sunday of getting to the high school early so you can set up chairs. I know the experience of, of having to turn a, a, a weightlifting room into a nursery. I know the experience and the smells that are there uh, when you have to come in with Lysol before Sunday morning. Uh, I know the experience of loading up the trailer and hauling it around from Sunday to Sunday. Uh, so so I, I want you to, to hear me say that much of my church planning experience uh, where I have been out with teams working has been in the paradigm that most of us in this room represent, I'm assuming, and that is more of a plant and pastor kind of model. However, what I'm going to be talking with you all about today and some of the things that we've been doing with Church of Brook Hills and calling out apostolic teams, raising them up, equipping them, sending them out to work among unreached people groups, much of what I'm talking about today is not going to fit into our present paradigm. And, and for many of us, that, that's, that's going to that's gonna push us, that's going to stretch us. I don't want you to hear me say that I'm, a, that I'm anti our present paradigm, the, the, the predominant paradigm of planting and pastoring. I'm, I'm not anti that. I've been a part of that, and I, I've, I continue to be a part of training guys and seeing them sent out. In fact, uh, just a few years ago, we sent a family to Southern California to be involved in, in that model, that expression of church planting. But, but much of what I'm going to be sharing with you today is something that I believe needs to happen in, in not, not on just a global scale, but within a North American context, if we're going to begin to, to see the penetration of lostness the way that we need to see it happen. So I want you to kind of keep that in the background as you hear what I, what I have to say and as, as I share. So, so that's some of, the, some, of the, some of the background. We live in a world where there are 11,000 unreached people groups, uh, almost 7,000 people groups in the world are considered uh, unreached. Excuse me, 11,000 people groups in the world. Almost 7,000 are considered unreached people groups. Over 3,000 of those people groups are considered unengaged unreached, meaning that there's no intentional evangelical church planning strategy seeking to engage them with the gospel. Now, we've often heard those numbers. I'm sure you have, right? You've heard those numbers. You've used those. You've preached those. You've, you've gone to Global Research Department with the IMB. You've gone to Joshua Project. Maybe you've consulted the, the World Christian Database. Uh, we're familiar with this information. But what about even getting a little bit more closer to home? So what we find is that about three-fourths of the United States has no relationship with Christ, and about 90% of Canada has no relationship with Christ. Now, that's wide-sweeping generalizations. 
Depends on where you are. By the way, uh, as uh, what I checked last, last night, when the data was about uh, eight years old, but, but Houston was about 25% evangelical. And so if you got a new update, let me know on that. I'd be, I'd be interested on that, to hear about that. But when you begin to, to look at countries of the world for unreached people groups, India and China come in as the largest in the world when it comes to the number of unreached people groups. But, but most people don't realize where the United States falls onto this list, and Canada as well. So the United States is home to the third largest number of unreached people groups in the world. And Canada comes in at number six. So, so what, what do we think about when we think about engaging lostness? Are we thinking about unreached people groups... Or is our primary approach to church planting, planting churches among reached people groups? Now, if you're like me, in my experience, in my background, I don't want to presume too much, but I, I can get around. <laughs> Most of us have been engaged in planting churches among reached people groups. And it doesn't, I'm not saying that we're not doing evangelistic work. I'm not saying that we don't need to be, begin planting churches that are going to be missional in the community. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But... I think we all would be pretty true in agreement if we said, all right, most of the church planting that's happening within the United States today across denominations and non-denominational groups is, um, is primarily about shuffling the sheep around in the kingdom and, and starting a new flavor of, of church in the Baskin-Robbins of Christianity that exists in the United States. Again, I'm not saying that we're not seeing baptisms. I'm not saying that we're not seeing people mobilized and sharing the gospel. But for the most part, uh, the churches that we're seeing birthed and planted are, are being, being started with long-term kingdom citizens. That's not what I'm talking about today. So, unengaged unreached people groups. Meaning, no one, no evangelical church planning strategy going on. The United States, of those numbers there, of 282 that exist within the U.S., over 200 of them are unengaged. There is no one, no one engaging them. And you can see Canada on there as well. So what, is, what does the Scripture have to say when it comes to this thing called church planting? Uh, and, and the answer is, there's no definition in the Bible about church planting, Right? So, I mean, there's no, there's no verse we can go to. There's no, there's no passage in the Bible that says, go and plant churches. But we're called to do what? Go and make disciples. That's a completely different story than going and planting churches. Completely different story. And, and so, what do we see, for example, with the Apostle Paul? Romans chapter 15. You are preachers. Well, those two verses. Come on. Don't even have to look it up. You know it, right? You don't have to quote it. Let's paraphrase it. Let's do a Phillips translation this morning, okay? Or afternoon. I made the effort to preach Christ, but where he hasn't been preached. Amen. Absolutely. It's the passage where Paul is saying, my desire is not to build upon another person's foundation, but, but to go where, where there is no foundation. That the apostolic task is about going to those that we would, to use common parlance, contemporary parlance, it's about going to those who, who are unreached, going to those who are unengaged, going to, to the lostness and, and, and preaching the gospel there and seeing churches come into existence. Now, the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14 
needs to kind of set the background of where we're, where we're, we're moving forward. Because as you begin to see what Paul and Barnabas was doing in these two passages, in these two chapters, in this first missionary journey, about 22, 24 months, you get to you see a pattern, this apostolic kind of pattern that's playing out over and over and over again, resulting in local expressions of the universal body of Christ, be it in Derby or Lystra or Iconium or Pisidia Antioch or or in a second missionary journey in Thessalonica. So so what's what's happening here in, in Acts 13 and 14? Well, for example, if we look at the map section in the back of our Bible, we see Paul and Barnabas going out on this first missionary trip. They would go into a synagogue. They would do evangelism. Some would believe, some would not believe. What would then usually happen after that? People would get what? Really angry and run them out of town. They would go to the next town. They would find a synagogue, if there's a synagogue, and they would do evangelism. Some would believe, some would not believe. What would happen? They get run out of town. And that happens over and over again on this first missionary journey. It just repeats itself over and over again. But something fascinating happens, and that is when you get to the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, instead of making new pathways into new communities, they turn around and they, they go backwards. They, they backtrack. So if you, if you listen in Acts chapter 14, or you're welcome to look it up there, Acts 14, verse number, oh, let's, uh, let's start with verse number 20, uh, 21. But when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So if, we, if we're reading through, through the gospels, through the, Acts, the book of Acts at this point in time, we know that a disciple is someone who, who obviously is a follower of Jesus. They've repented of their sin. They've placed their faith in Christ. So they've made many disciples. They returned. So now they're turning around and they're going back. And they're going to eventually end up back at Antioch, the church that sent them out. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples. So we would say, okay, yeah, that's, that, sounds, that sounds right. That sounds good. They just came through those places. People came into the kingdom. Now they're going back to teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And now here's where things get really interesting. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, let's reverse engineer this thing. They appointed elders for them in every church. Where, where did these elders come from? Did, did they call the, the mature church up in Antioch or in Jerusalem and say, hey, could you, could you send us some, some really mature pastors to come over and shepherd these folks? Where did the churches come from? Because if you're reading through, there are no churches until we get to the end of chapter 14 and we're backtracking and, and they're pointing elders or pointing pastors in every church. And, and, the, and the obvious answer that we know is that the, the disciples came out of the harvest when they repented, placed faith in Jesus. And as those disciples were gathered together in, in Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Ephesus, Colossae, Hierapolis, all those different places, they, they were, they were self-identifying as a local expression of the body of Christ. And then their leadership is coming from within those congregations. So it shouldn't surprise us when we read like Titus chapter 1 verse 5 where, where Paul says to Titus, the reason that I left you on Crete, this 100 mile long island, is to, to put things that remain, that's not in order, put them in order and do what? Appoint elders in every town. It shouldn't surprise us when we jump over to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 
or Titus 1, and we look at the characteristics of an elder, how much of that information can be found from a guy's resume or an interview? It may be apt to teach and able to exhort from the Scriptures, but the majority of it can only be understood if someone has been in community with those people. So when I'm talking about apostolic church planting today, this, this is what, what I'm talking about. A pathway of seeing disciples coming out of the harvest, churches birthed out of the harvest with 100% conversion growth. And pastors coming out of those congregations birthed out of the harvest. And so what do we see throughout the Scriptures? Well, you see, it begins with the gospel being shared, so they're doing evangelism. Disciples are made. Churches identify. Church isn't even talked about until disciples are made. Paul and Barnabas don't show up and figure out, okay, we've got to get our church's website together and get our church's name and our bylaws and constitution, 501c3, nonprofit tax exemption status. I mean, they're not even talking about church until disciples are made. Now, after disciples are made, then they get their website, right? Okay, but, but, uh, but not before. And the website comes out of the people's cultural expression. And they're, hey, what do you think we need to put on the website? You know, should it be a .com or .org or .? I mean, so, so and then it, the leadership... Their pastoral leadership is coming out of those congregations. So when I'm talking about apostolic church planting, that's what I'm talking about. So what we started doing as a church in, in Birmingham uh, about six years ago is casting this vision before our people as the, listen carefully, the expectation for church planting, not the exception. Now, most of us would say, well, yeah, J.D., if you're going to do that in Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or the Horn of Africa, or we're going to do this, you know, it, it, in some majority world context, but not here. We changed the language. We changed the, the measurement of, of, on the scorecard, if you will, for what would, would be success. And I'm using that term loosely. And here's what happened. The Holy Spirit started calling out people. Now, we've been sending them for years to West Africa, to North Africa, to the Middle East. But when, when people began to see, wait a minute, so there, there, there's, there's massive lostness here. There's incredible number, there are incredible numbers of unreached people groups. And it can be, it can be this simple. It's about evangelism. It's about teaching new believers how to obey Jesus. It's about leading them to self-identify as a local church. It's about leadership development. When the church began to hear that, and we simultaneously, while teaching them an ecclesiology from the scriptures and saying to them, hey, you know what you see around us on Sunday morning with these 3,000, 4,000 people with this great praise and worship team, and we get up and preach for 45 minutes and have these great kids programs. When you see all this, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that we don't have to reproduce it. And when we began teaching our people that, the dentists and the construction workers and the hospital administrators and the musicians and the airline pilots and the engineers said, I can do that. So what we, we inserted into this was a, a, a sign of kind of another step between disciples made and church identified because we, we have a very strong culture of, of, of small groups, which I'm, I'm hoping you all do as well in your churches. 
And, uh, and so we talk to them about after they come to faith, having this, this liminal period of time, this, this time of transition where they move out from being dis- disciples to being, being taught in a small group community in this pathway, in this journey of asking them ultimately, is the Holy Spirit leading you to be what we've been talking about in community with one another called the, the body of Christ, called the church? That you can't be a lone ranger for Jesus. All these things we've been talking about, about what Jesus says, it has to be lived out in community. So we, we teach our people that there's this, this small group gathered component that's in, in the process in the process as well. Um, we won't look at, look at it for the sake of time, but if you go back to, for example, 1 Thessalonians, Paul's second missionary journey, he was probably there for about three weeks. Um, first chapter... And with just within the first 10 verses, Paul unpacks to the Thessalonians everything that was necessary for the church to be birthed in Thessalonica. And it's amazingly simple. Uh, he, he, and, and I'll alliterate. So for you preachers, here's your sermon. All right. So it's, 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 it's amazingly simple. It's we came to you. So they're sowers. We came to you. You were the soil. We came to you with, with the gospel. There's the seed. And the Holy Spirit. There's the Spirit. Seed, sower, soil, and spirit. We came to you with the gospel. And you came to faith. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And your example rang forth throughout Macedonia and throughout Achaia. So two major regions. And Paul goes on to say, you know what kind of people we were among you for your sake. And then he goes on to say, not only have you set an example to other believers through these two different regions, but the gospel is ringing forth. It's spreading forth from Thessalonica into all these different areas. And he says, we have no need to speak of anything else. You're, you're an example. You're a testimony to all of this, to what Jesus has done in your lives. So... Isn't it interesting that when we read passages like um, Peter and John standing before the religious leaders at the beginning uh, chapters of the book of Acts, and they're, they're accused of you know, messing up Jerusalem with this false teaching, but they say this, they say, um, these guys are all these troublemakers, but here's the thing that really shocks us. They, they are idiotized. So now you, you, you all preach that text. What does that word mean? It means they're unschooled, unlearned, ordinary men. And then Luke records this, but they noticed that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, that's what made all the difference. That's what made, that's what made the difference. So what happens then later? Paul and his team going through an area. They come to Thessalonica before the church is planted in Thessalonica. And um, these people come into town and they say, these, these guys have turned the world upside down. Now, I got to thinking about that. And I was thinking about this. Okay, these men are ordinary, unschooled men. They Later on, Paul and his team, they've turned the world upside down. Paul was obviously seminary trained. He was educa- well educated of his day. And Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the gospel rings forth. It spreads throughout Macedonia and Achaia. You have no more, you know, we don't have to tell anything about what's going on. Your, your evidence to all this. What, what's going on here in the, in the New Testament? 
This thing called disciple making and what we now call church planting was incredibly simple. You don't turn the world upside down with complexity. And I fear that if this thing called church planting that we know and practice and do almost 100% of the time the way we do it in the United States today, if that was the paradigm in the first century, I do not believe the gospel would have left the Middle East. What am I not saying? I'm not saying do not leave here and take a wrecking ball to what the Lord is doing in your lives and in your ministries. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not going back to Birmingham with a wrecking ball and decimating a megachurch. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we as leaders have got to move in a more excellent way. It doesn't mean that we, 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 we can't continue doing what we're doing, but, but what would happen if, if instead of always looking for the 8, 9, 10 talented type, high capacity church planters that need to raise a small mint fortune in order to plant a church... And, and then after three years, they're, they're, they're under this pressure cooker to produce because their funding source is, is, is running out. And the model that was really popular in Southern California in the late 80s and early, late 70s and throughout the 80s isn't supporting them the way that it was supposed to work and did work back in those days. What, what if that becomes the exception? We don't forbid it. We don't ban it. But what if that becomes the exception and the expectation is where are the two, three, four, five, eight, six, seven talented type people? We widen the church planting table and we begin to say, what's the marketable skill that God has placed in your hand? What's your marketable degree? Because if, if the nurse in my church does not have to stand up on 40 stand up on Sunday morning and for 45 minutes give an expositional monologue in front of a crowd of people because he's scared to death to speak in public if he's taught that hey you you can still preach the word exhort from the scriptures rightly expound the truth but it doesn't have to have this cultural manifestation and and you could do this with with five somali in your community or, or 12 Nepali in your community. Or, or maybe you could gather together with, with, you know, with, uh, with 15 Cubans, Nicaraguans, and, and, and begin to lead them through God's Word. He, he automatically begins to say, hey, you know what? I can do that, J.D. And you know why? It's because the, my home church has been preparing me and teaching me to do that all along. And so I had a guy sitting in my office one time. He said, he said so J.D., what you're talking about is you're talking about reaching unreached people groups, evangelism, making disciples, gathering them together, working to raise up leaders out of, out of these new churches. He said, basically, for the most part, what I've been doing here in Birmingham, not even realizing that I've been doing it, that's what you're saying that I can do among an unreached people group. And maybe even pack up and move. And he and his, his family actually moved and did that very thing. And I said, that's exactly right. It doesn't have to be this complicated. It does not have to be this complex. I mean, Again, not, not banning, not forbidding, but what if, what if the present expectation becomes the exception? And what if this 
becomes the expectation. I was in a conversation one time with a brother who had uh, been involved in church planning and um, planted a lot of churches. Um, loved this brother greatly. And, uh, and he was just asking me, he said, so tell me about Brook Hills and you know, Vision, what you're doing. And, and I just, what I just shared with you all, I just shared it with him. And he looked at me and it was like shock. It, 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 was, it was as if uh, I had come up with, with something unusual. And he said, man, that's amazing. That's great. That's wonderful. And instead of being encouraged by that reaction and walking away thinking, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. I was troubled. Because when a biblical model shocks us, it shows us just how far we've moved away from a biblical model. Pastors, you need to develop, I need to develop an apostolic imagination. It does not mean that we go in and scrap what's been done and what's taking place and what the Lord has just started a year ago or getting ready to start in two months from now. I'm not saying that at all. Don't be who God hasn't called you to be. But I am saying, what if we begin to think about this thing called church planning from a, from a radically different angle? And we begin to cast this vision to our people and we say, hey, you know, it's okay that we have this cultural manifestation of how we do church here. That's fine. That's fine. But we don't have necessarily have to reproduce this. What about you? Could, could you go and work among those Saudi students that are on that university campus? Make disciples, plant churches among them. Hey, what, what about you? Could you go work among that Russian community down the street? Make disciples, plant churches among them. And it's amazing when, 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 when people begin to see the simplicity of, of what we see in the Scriptures and, and recognize, wait a minute, so it, J.D., it doesn't have to be like the way that you lead out in ministry and the way you do things? No, it doesn't. Things begin to shift. Things begin, begin to change. So what are we talking about? We're talking about developing teams that we can send into communities and those teams act, act, act more as a scaffold rather than a permanent fixture. That they're there to, to, to reach a, an individual or individuals who have social networks that extend throughout that community. Very, very much like what we see with Paul and his teams. It, again, they weren't ever abandoning these people. They were going back. They were sending Timothy back and Epaphras back. They were going back to visit, to write letters. But, but what if our teams begin to think more in terms of how do we go in, and even before we get there and engage the people, we're already planning on a day when we will move on even partnering with this new church and their leaders to do this again somewhere else. It shifts, it shifts the conversation and it widens the church planting table, I believe, in a direction that we, we haven't seen in a long time. When it comes to church planting for me, it boils down to really three things. And this is what we teach our people and how we're raising up our, our teams with our church. Evangelism, discipleship, pastoral development. We're training people how to do this. Now, let me pause and hit this button right here and say, don't hear me say that we've got it all worked out because we, we've got a lot of questions. God is gracious. We're making mistakes. We are uh, hitting potholes along the road. So, so don't hear me say, say we've got it all worked out. We, uh, we've, we have a team, this, our team's within the state, so not, I won't talk about our teams outside of the country right now, but our teams within the states, and I have to be careful what I say because this is being recorded uh, for security purposes. Remember, you need to be aware of security issues, even doing unreached people group work in North America as well. Um, so we have a team in the Pacific Northwest. 
working among um, working among a very very difficult uh, East African people group, really hard to reach. Uh, we have a team up in Detroit uh, working uh, among uh, Detroit's largest Arab Muslim community in the United States. Uh, we have a team that's about to come off the field out of uh, the New York, New Jersey area that's been working among the Indian Hindu Punjabi community. And then for, for a couple years, we tried some pilot things within our, within our own town in Birmingham uh, where we had about 40 people divided up into to four different church planning teams seeking to engage under these people groups uh, around us. Getting ready to send, send a family to work among an unreached people group in Toronto. So, so we're, just, I mean, we're just getting started in this. So it's not like, hey, J.D., you've got it all worked out. It's not like, hey, the Church of Brook Hills, man, they, they know exactly what they're doing. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's just amazing that when you begin to, to, to return to the Scriptures, remove some of our cultural expectations and preferences off of this thing called church planting, that the number of men and women that jump on board is, 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 is incredible. It's incredible. And, and what are we doing? We're, 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 we're training them in the same ways that I would train guys to, and have trained guys to go out and plant churches and pastor churches, primarily involved in evangelism, discipleship, and pastoral development. We're just not having to deal with all the other stuff, all those other cultural expectations. Where can I... And I used to play in a band, okay? I used to play a praise and worship band. I almost set my hair on fire with her candelabra one time, but we won't talk about that. Um, so I love high-quality praise and worship music. But we're not having to struggle and figure out, you know, where we, can we get the best deal on guitar strings in town when we're training our people. Um, if, uh, if, that, if that group of unbelievers comes to faith and they want to have a guitar in their worship gathering, that's for them to decide. We don't tell them that they have to have a guitar. Because as soon as we begin to tell them, even not verbally, but just model it before them, they equate that is the way to do it right. And I've got a lot of church members that on Sunday, I just preached this past Sunday, I don't preach that often, but I just preached this past Sunday, that uh, they believe that that is the only way to, to teach the Scriptures. And we have a great praise and worship team, teams, and uh, very thankful for it. And we've got a lot of church members that believe that's the way you have to do worship. And we've got great kids workers, and we've got amazing kids programs, and we've got people who are thinking that's the way that you have to do it. And, and part, of this, part of the challenge, folks, is, is helping our people deconstruct some of the cultural expectations. Not biblical prefer, prescription, not biblical prescription, but our cultural expectations. And when we can begin to get them to move in that direction, things begin to change and they begin to say, wow, I, di I didn't know about that. So definition of a team. So for me, a team is, is not 20 people. All right. That's a mega church in some parts of the world. Um, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, my, you know, my, you know, I planted a church and our team was 25 people. Well, you know, that, you know, my first church that I pastored, I think we had 25 people, all right? So um, for me, a team is, is, is about two to six people, adults, two to six, keeping it small. Why? We want it to be simple, highly reproducible. We want the people to, that we come in contact with to see a lifestyle of what it means to follow Jesus that is imitatable. First Thessalonians chapter 1, you became imitators of us. And the gospel rings forth throughout Macedonia and Achaia. You set an example for all believers in these two provinces. We want to see that reproduced. We want to see a 2 Thessalonians 3.1 situation where Paul says, pray that the word of God spreads rapidly and with honor. How is that going to happen? 
It won't happen through complex structures. It won't happen through all kinds of, of thick cultural Christianity. may not be wrong. Our manifestations of, 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 of living out the, the Christian life are not all bad. Me personally, you know what I prefer? I was raised in southeastern Kentucky in Appalachia. We sang Victory in Jesus every week. All three verses. Baptist hymnal, 1975 or 76. I'm drawing a blank. 75 or 76. Which one is it? 75. Amen, brother. I see that hand back there. And it was always done with an upright piano. And all the preachers, they had never been to seminary. All right? They were, they were coal miners. They were farmers. And I'm a former seminary professor, so I'm not knocking. I still teach in, in, in three different seminaries right now, so I'm not knocking seminary education. Get as much education as you can. But these guys were hacking preachers. You know what a hacking preacher is? And the Bible says, ah, and Moses lifted his staff, ah, and he parted the rest, ah. Now that's good gospel preaching, all right? How many of you all preach like that? I thought I was with a bunch of Christians. I'm going to have to pray for your all's preaching. Who's not been teaching you? They haven't been modeling that before you, right? You haven't. That's my preference. I grew up with that. Is that wrong? Is it bad? Of course it's not wrong. Of course it's not bad. Is it necessary? Is it necessary to, to carry that on to see the gospel spread across a people group or population segment? And the answer is no. Is it reproducible? Sure, it's reproducible to some degree. But the more complex we make this thing out to be the church, the less likely the man and the woman on the street, the carpenter, the mechanic, stay-at-home mom are going to be able to take this and run with it. And my desire, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, is to see this gospel spread rapidly and spread with honor and see the gospel spread throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia. And, and so we're going to have to teach our people that some of our cultural preferences don't need to be transferred on to another generation. doesn't mean that's wrong or bad. It just may mean that it could hinder the, the spread of the gospel among that people. It could mean that it's going to hinder the, the planting of churches among that people. So, definition of team, two to six people. What else? So, is this your idea of teamwork? If you can't read the caption there, it says because bullets can only go through so many bodies. The, uh, the idea is that a team is, is to, to, to fulfill my desire. I'm just going to get a bunch of people together and let them just, just get beat up just as long as I can accomplish my task and my goal. Surely that's not your definition of teamwork. How do you see teamwork? Maybe it's I'm the only person. I'm the only person that's, that's having to run the stairs. But, but what, about, what about pulling together? And so for me, a team is, is a group of folks that are working together in, in cooperation with one another, caring for one another, and, and seeking to, compl- to accomplish that vision that has been placed upon their hearts. And so when we begin to think about, about a team, we always come to this issue, and that is, what about, what about some of the challenges? What about some of the common problems? What are some of the things that come up with, with, with apost- even apostolic church planting teams? What are some of the things that we've seen? These are not common to just apostolic church planting teams. They're common to all teams when we get together. We, we end up finding ourselves in these situations. So let me share with you some of the things that we've seen. Communication breakdown. So when we have a team, we expect that there's going to be a team leader. We don't have a team if we don't have a team leader. And so... So even with a team leader, we find that there is communication breakdown all the time. Some teams are doing better than others. 
internationally and here in the States as well, even within our local church and our local mission teams and things that we have going on. But we're often finding that the breaking down of communication is, is a huge issue in team development today. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not certain what it is. I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, people that are incredible Bible expositors that can communicate the Word so well have a really difficult time communicating well with the other people on their team. And so I would just say when we think about team development, know that this is a big issue. And we need to think about how do we work through this. I'm going to give you a practical resource at the end in just a few moments. But I just want you to keep this in mind. Communication breakdown is a huge challenge in developing any kind of team, especially apostolic church playing teams. Poor chemistry. Poor chemistry. So we just can't get along. You know, we, 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 just, we just can't get along. We, we all love Jesus. We love His Word. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. Okay, well, that's enough. Let's all get together and form a team. That's not enough to get together and form a team. Some people need to be on another team. And you all need to get together and hang out once a month and have great Tex-Mex food together. They just don't need to be on your team. And you don't need to be on their team. doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that, that chemistry is important for a team to be developed. Do you connect? Do you click with one another? Do you, do, do you, do you work well and interact with one another? Do you like each other? Another challenge is related to this, chemi- this chemistry is that a lot of times if we're not working to raise up teams from within our churches, a lot of times church planners that are kind of the lone rangers that are out there, that they develop their teams with what I call the air love test. So if someone is uh, breathing air and they, uh, they love Jesus, you know, they are going to be on my team kind of thing. Uh, those two things aren't, aren't sufficient. So uh, keep that in mind. Authority issues. Even when we put together church planning teams, we've sent them out with a clearly designated team leader. There have been challenges, struggles with authority issues. And it's been on both sides of the table. With the individual who's the team leader, we have encountered many challenges related to that individual and that person's authority with those on the team that aren't the leader. Some of their pushbacks, some of their challenges. So, so know that these are things that I have seen that are very common among developing church planning teams, character issues. So even though we do a lot of assessing and screening theologically and on um, um, ethical, moral, behavioral type matters, uh, these issues come up as well, character issues. Another challenge to teams today. Vision and values. So you have teams that that begin well and they begin strong. We've got this vision. We've got this passion to do X, Y, Z, to reach this particular group, to go over here. And then about a year later, um, they're, they're pulling in different directions. Different values begin to develop. Different visions begin to develop. Oh, that's not what I thought was going to happen. That's, that's, we talked about that, but that's not really what we said at the beginning. Um, how many times over, over the past 15 years have I heard from church planters that have gone plant pastor churches where I've been told uh, the core group that I had when we first planted, after year two, they're no more. The church has been planted, but they're no longer around. And a lot of times the reason is because of a shifting vision and value system. I didn't know that it was going to turn out like that. I didn't know that we weren't going to be as close as we were in the beginning because now you're having to pastor you know, more people. And so, so we've, we've seen this before, vision and values, as an issue 
So let me talk a little bit about on selecting team members and kind of, kind of what we do in this process. So, so praying and fasting. So uh, someone comes to me and says, J.D., I feel like God has called us to be involved in church planting. Speaking about family or an individual. I feel like God's called me to be involved in church planting. If it is discerned that that individual is to be the leader of the team, then the challenge is go pray and fast that God would raise up a team for you. We, we do not want to send out lone rangers. We do not want to send out folks walking into the trenches where the spiritual warfare is amazingly uh, hostile. And uh, if you weren't here earlier listening to our brother share about spiritual warfare and things of that nature, you need to... You need to be a part of that in the future. I heard that he's doing some more sessions this year. Uh, you all know it. It's, it's real business. It's serious business. And so, so pray and fast. Put together, put together your team. Look for people who share. So here's what I challenge our team leaders. Look for people who share a common calling. So do they have a similar calling to you uh, to this particular people group that you're going to serve them on that's in this particular area? A common theological position. So as a church, and, and I'm assuming many of you do this as well, uh, there are, there's a doctrinal statement, a doctrinal set of standards by which you expect your church planters to, to adhere to. And my assumption is, is it's what's expected for all church members. I mean, that it is, that's what we do. So, so we kind of have this, this foundational understanding. Now, of course, we do investigate that through our church planters assessment and don't have time to unpack what's going on in our assessment. Maybe we can talk about it in Q&A. But, um, but what, what are the common theological convictions, primary issues and secondary issues, especially that you, that, that you, you, you as a team leader and those that should be on your team just, just will not bend? What are the primary and secondary theological issues that you need to hold to? And that needs to be common among team members. I would say that folks on the team need to have a commitment to an apostolic approach to church planting. Because if they're, if they're operating in a different paradigm, then again, you're going to see down the road very quickly pulling in, in different, different directions. Healthy chemistry. So do, do, they, do they connect well with you? Now, here's the thing. Conflict is inevitable, right? So Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas end up going in separate directions. Conflict is inevitable. The question is, how will we handle conflict when it comes? Is there a point in time where sometimes teams have to go in separate directions? And the answer is yes. I had a very similar, very much related conversation, very, very hard conversation uh, just recently related to that very matter where it's a Paul and Barnabas going in different directions. But how do we respond? How do we, how do we expect people in our teams to respond to conflict? Again, I want to kind of give you a practical tool to help through some of these challenges and some of these things that we should look for in just a second. Barnabas factors. So for me, one of the things that, that I'm looking for, and why I'm challenging our people, our leaders, and putting together, is that as you're looking for, for people to be a part of your team, look for people that manifest these characteristics that we see in the life of Barnabas throughout, throughout the book of Acts and in some of Paul's other writings. So obviously they walk with the Lord. They, they have an outstanding character. They, they, they serve in the local church. So how are you going to be involved in planting churches if, if you're not already loving the, the bride of Christ to begin with? Remains faithful to the call. Does this person have a history of, of being, being faithful to the tasks that he or she you know, set their hands to? 
shares the gospel regularly and raises up leaders, are they intentional about evangelism? Are they intentional about working to raise up people? If, if, evangel if, if church planting from a biblical perspective is evangelism that results in new churches, why would we want people on our team to, to have evangelism as something as a side thought? You know, and, and as us as leaders, are, are we intentional in our, in our personal evangelism? Raises up leaders. We desire to raise up leadership out of people. Encourages with speech and actions because, because difficult days will, will come. You need people on your team that will, that will be there for one another and responds well to conflict. Barnabas went through conflict. He even fell into some of the hypocrisy that Peter entered into, if you go back and read Galatians. But you see Paul's desire for Barnabas, John Mark, uh, even later in his writings as well. So, Barnabas factors. Last thing, then we'll turn it over to our moderator and do some Q&A. Agrees to a covenant of team understandings. So, this is one of the documents that I'm going to post and I want you to have. It's a couple-page document that, um, that we've put together. And what it is, is it's, it's, we give it to our team leaders... And they work with the members of their team in developing a covenant of team understandings. Now, here's what this document does. It tries to alleviate many of those challenges that we just quickly rushed through. It, 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 it helps focus the team. So it addresses questions like this. Uh, what is our vision? Where will we be living? Some of the biggest challenges that I've seen that's happened in, in church planning teams is when someone decides that they're going to live 30 miles down the road from where they were planning to do ministry. And then you got people down here that are already living there, moved into the community, and I've seen it many times. So from the very beginning, where are we going to live when we move into the community? If we're working among unreached people groups that are predominantly non-English speaking, if you're an English speaker, Spanish for my brothers and sisters that are listening through the translation right now, um, language learning. How much language do we expect to learn as a team? Absolutely in the United States. We are training folks to learn other languages for evangelism and church planting. We do it all over the world. Why not in our backyard? Why not in our backyard? How much language is expected? How, uh, how, you know, what, what, how, what proficiency level should you be after year one? What happens if the team leader... These are just some of the questions that the, that the, team, the covenant of team understanding addresses. What happens if the team leader decides that, that he's called somewhere else? What happens to the rest of the team? Does he need to give them six-month heads, heads up? Does he need to give them a year heads up? What about accountability? How will they stay in, accountable to, to our church? How will, how will we as a local church know what's going on in the field? How will they handle conflict when it comes up? What happens when they, there's just an impasse, even with the leader that's on the team? How will they shepherd and care for one another? How will they, how will they do ministry together? Are they expected to be involved in social activities together? Are they only just doing ministry? A lot of these things that end up causing friction and conflict and teams breaking down are things that we try to address long before they go to the field. And they all sit down, they, they put all this together, and they come to an agreement. And then they hold themselves accountable, and we hold them accountable as well as we move forward. And where I've seen this put into place, it has been amazingly helpful. Doesn't mean that it's, it's not been without problems and challenges, but it's been amazingly helpful. 
where I've seen such, such an, an item not in the place before the teams get to the field, some of these very simple things that I just used as examples have, have led to the, the breakdown of ministry, interpersonal conflict, breakdown in communication, and eventually teams going in different directions.